All right, hello everybody. My name is Joe Parent and welcome to the NDISC Speaker Series. We're really lucky today to have Gary Gertz and Steph Haggard joining us. Um, I wanna make three quick announcements first and then I'll give them their proper introductions. Uh, the first announcement is we're gonna go with a slightly non-standard format today. It's gonna be kind of like a hockey game. We'll drop the puck, present for a while, maybe 15 minutes, take a break, resolve any questions you guys have had um, for five or 10 minutes and then we'll go to the second period do more presentation material, take another Zamboni break, more Q&A, go on to the third segment, do that, and then we'll go into more open-ended question and answer session. Um, if you have a question, uh, please, we have the one finger and two finger rule. If you have a general question, that's a one finger question. Um, you should in your uh, reactions thing, have um, a way to raise your hand, a raise hand function. And uh, if you have something that's on a point that someone's talking about at that second, you can jump the line by doing a two finger, uh, which is by raising the thumb, the thumbs up gesture in the reaction bar. Um, so don't abuse it, but that's there to make sure that the conversation is on point and doesn't ping pong around too much. Uh, the third point is to turn on your mic and video if you have any questions. So those are the three announcements non-standard format, the one and two finger rules, and then turn on your video and mic when you're uh, asking a question and then turn them off when you're done. Um, now for introductions, uh, we're delighted to be joined with Notre Dame's own Gary Gertz. Uh, he received his BA in math from Bethel College, his MS also in math from the University of Iowa and his PhD from in political science from the University of Michigan. He's the author of nine books and over 50 articles on methods, institutions, conflicts and peace, two of which uh, two of his works have won um, prizes and he's now a professor at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. Uh, along with him is his co-author, Steph Haggard, who's uh, got a clean sweep of degrees from Berkeley, where he studied under the legendary Ernie Haas. He's the author of 11 books and over 60 articles, including two book awards. He writes on international political economy, democracy, and development. He's a Lawrence and Sally Krauss Distinguished Professor and Editor of the Journal of East Asian Studies. So if you'll give me a virtual clap, let's welcome um, Gary Gertz and Steph Haggard. Anyway, listen, thanks very much for doing this. Um, this is a, a little bit of a world premiere, or it is a world premiere. We haven't actually <laughs> presented this work uh, before. And I want to really dive right in. But before doing that, I want to spend just a few minutes on the sociology of knowledge here and how we got to where we were in this project. Uh, back in 2012, Bob Kaufman and I published a piece in the APSR about regime change, in which we looked at uh, transitions to democratic rule and seeing the extent to which they conformed with some theoretical models that have been put up in the literature by um, uh, Carlos Boash, Darren Asimoglu, and Jim Robinson. And what we did is we, we looked at all of these transitions and essentially came to the conclusion that very few conformed with these models that had been, they had been set up. And, and Gary actually picked up on the fact that I had been doing this. And in his 2017 book, he had a chapter, which he called Large End Qualitative Testing, which found that this was going on among some IR scholars, including some very critical pieces on audience costs by Snyder and Borchardt that some of you might know, and on new democracies by Narong and Nelson. And then meanwhile, I think Dale Copeland is on the call. Dale's you know, incredible economic interdependence and war 
um, which I I'd read when it came out, but I'd kind of forgotten this because I wasn't focused on it, has a very important methodological chapter as well in which he outlines the method of that book, which involves, again, the logic of choosing a large number of cases and interrogating each of them in some detail. And, and subsequently, we also learned that there was a sem symposium in the QMMR newsletter, the Qualitative Multi-Methods Research Newsletter, uh, that, that took apart um, the Copeland book. Uh, the reason I'm going into this in part is because the approach that Gary and I are taking to this question is in part what I would call anthropological, by which I mean we're reading a lot of books right now that have been published by Cornell and Princeton. The title is not facetious. And we're identifying a number of books that are effectively engaging in, in a quite similar method or a variant of the method that Bob and, and Dale and I have been doing. And today we're gonna to be talking or using as examples several in this vein, including Rose Kalanick's wonderful book on, on, on oil, uh, Dale's book, um, The McDonald and Parent, Twilight of the Titans, uh, Joe is in the house, and also this terrific book by Sexer and Furman. You may think it's terrific depending on what you think of the, of the findings. <laughs> I actually tend to be on one side of that debate and like it, <laughs> others don't. But it's a terrific book methodologically because it's an example of multi-method variant of this LNQA analysis. And so we'll be coming back to, to that. So um, the, the purpose of this is to try to systematize what we're seeing in this research style and um, stripped of, of a lot of nuance, which we'll talk about, there are really three core components of this method, which we've, which we've identified. And the first of them is um, that in contrast to standard econometric designs, in which you're interested in increasing the number of observations of the phenomenon in question, because you're looking for the average treatment effect of X on Y, these are phenomena or tend to focus on phenomena which we might think of as being rare events. And by rare events, we don't mean that the panel isn't large. You know, there may be thousands or even hundreds of thousands of observations, for example, in a dyadic data set that looks at the causes of war. But the whys, the outcomes are relatively rare the Ys are relatively rare, or the Xs are relatively rare. And, and so um, it raises the question of whether econometric techniques like rare event logits are really the most appropriate way for studying these phenomena. And there are other reasons why they may not be as well. Um, you know, Gary and I put together a, a brief slide just delineating some of these phenomena where the, the Y or the X is relatively small. But obviously wars, the rise and fall of great powers in Joe's book, hegemonies, empires, post-war settlements. I mean, what's the N in Eikenberry's book? It's four, right? Uh, peace agreements, crises, financial crises, obviously in comparative politics, things like revolutions. Uh, Theta Scotchpole's book, she defines revolutions to have an N of three. There are three social revolutions in Scotchpole's view, right? Um, state failure and so on. I could go on, but the point is that um, defining a population 
and setting scope conditions around it is a critical feature of this literature. And typically, the, those scope con conditions are designed to actually narrow the scope of the phenomenon in question. You know, to, 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 to look at a small, uh, a small sample and try to generalize across it. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about how that's um, done. I'll just say one more word on this. Increasingly, I, when I first started thinking about this, I thought of these events as intrinsically rare. That is, these are things like a famine is an intrinsically rare event. There aren't that many great famines. But I've subsequently um, come to the view that that conclusion is wrong and that these really should be seen as tales of a distribution. You know, we're interested in the tale of a distribution. We're interested to use another example about, uh, you know, why world records are broken. You know, those are, those are rare events. There are lots of races that are run, but only a handful of them break records, right? So we're looking at a, the tale of a distribution and we can talk about that. Now, the, the, the next feature of this, which um, is, is quite central to, the, to, this, to this work, is um, within case causal inference and the use of process tracing techniques. And if you think of a phenomena like you know, a world war or retrenchment, to, to use Joe Parent's example, you know, these are obviously extremely complex phenomena. And we'll come back to the fact that the definition of X and Y itself is frequently quite complex. And that case study work is partly useful because identifying those components of a complex X in an econometric design you know, faces fundamental limits. And Gary's early work, in fact, was, was um, coming out of his quantitative work, was making the point that once you get several multiple conditions, it becomes the, the econometrics of, of doing that becomes somewhat intractable. So these are complex theories which lend themselves to within case causal inference and testing using process tracing techniques. But the difference in LNQA is that it, it self-consciously addresses the question of external validity by either doing all of the cases or sampling on them very heavily. So for example, in Joe's book, there are 16 cases of great power decline and uh, McDonald and Parent look at six of those but they're sampled so that you have a high decline, a medium decline, and a low decline case. So you're really looking at a very substantial hunk of the total cases. And what this means methodologically is actually quite important because the qualitative methods literature has been preoccupied with the problem of case selection because if you're selecting a case, you have to justify why that case is selected. And if it's an outlier, then it's not going to necessarily strengthen causal inference. But what LNQA does is it says, look, I'm looking at all of the cases. All of the cases. Bob Kaufman and I looked at all democratic transitions. And what that allowed us to do is to generalize. And what most of this talk is going to be about today is what these uh, so-called X and Y uh, generalizations look like. Uh, and let me just give you some examples because the, the punchline of these books that involve a tremendous amount of work, I mean, each of these books is, 
you know, just incredibly rich. I don't know if Rose is on the call. I'm very high on her book. I've been reading the chapters. You know, it's just a terrific book. But, you know, the summary, Rose's book can really be summarized in one sentence. Overall outcomes confirm the theory's expectations in 10 out of 11 cases. She looks at 11 cases and she finds that, you know, this causal theory, which she postulates, is not only present in those cases, but operates in those cases. That's the bottom line, is that generalization. Uh, Dale is a little more um, modest. Uh, though, you know, if we think of this in a Bayesian sense and think about what the priors were going into that, they would have been much lower. And Dale points this out. He says, you know, people don't expect that these conflicts, that economic interdependence figures strongly with them, in them. But I'm going to look at 40 cases and I'm going to show you in 75% of them, economic interdependence played a, a moderate to strong causal role. And similarly, in the McDonald and Parent, you know, the punchline of the book in some ways is, is delivered by saying, look, of these 16 cases, people say that great powers don't retrench. Well, I got news for you. They do. Because I've looked at the 16 cases of the phenomena, that is all of them. And I can tell you that the vast majority of great powers, depending on how one codes ambiguous cases, respond to decline with retrenchment. And so what Gary's going to be doing um, for the rest of the time is talking about you know, the logic of these X and Y generalizations. But before we do that, I just want to close with one more point. And that is that the depth of decline um, is, you know, kind of the master causal variable in the McDonald and Parent, for example. But in fact, you know, there are a set of mediating factors which play a role in their analysis. It's not just the depth of decline. There are these other things which intervene. And so when we say X as the treatment, that treatment can be extremely complex, as it is in all of these books, typically. And the Y can also be extremely complex. Because uh, in the McDonald and Parent, for example, the extent and form of retrenchment is broken out into a whole series of sub-policies at both the national and international level. Again, an advantage of the qualitative design, right? But for the purpose today, when Gary and I talk about X and Y generalizations, we're going to, and we can talk about how to handle these complex treatments, we'll be um, considering it as if you have a master X or a master Y, and that the core of the objective is to show the relationship between those two, right? Now, um, let me, let me uh, this will be my last slide and then I'll stop. So Rose is quite explicit on this, and, and we also use this term congruence generalizations. Um, and so we're going to talk about congruence generalizations as just simply um, generalizations based on the presence of the antecedent condition or the outcome. So if I'm summarizing over the McDonald and Parent sample, I can just simply say and report that, look, the antecedent condition, you know, the great power decline, is followed by retrenchment. But of course, that doesn't do justice to the LNQA piece of this, which is the within case causal inference of each case, in which the generalization arises not from simply reporting the presence of the antecedent condition, 
but reporting the within case causal inference within each case summarized across the cases. Okay, does everyone follow? This is really quite important because if this exercise were just simply say is the antecedent condition there, the kind of Humean conception of cause, I mean, that's, that's thin, right? But these books are not about just those summary tables. They're about the fact that the work has been done to demonstrate not just the presence of the, of the causal mechanism, but its operation within the case. Uh, obviously, I don't need to repeat, hopefully, that this is quite different from a probabilistic design where you're looking for average treatment effects. But one of the things that Gary and I are working on is how to think about a, a setup, and my UC, there are a bunch of UCSD colleagues in here on, on, the, on the call, and most of them who are doing work like this are doing a prior econometric design, which they're looking at the average treatment effect of X on Y, but then they're looking at cases and trying to draw these X and Y generalizations, which is what uh, Gary is going to uh, talk about. So uh, let me uh, stop my share here and, and pause for a second and make sure uh, that everyone knows where we are and where we're going. And if anyone has some clarifying questions, we can take them shortly before handing off to Gary. Going once? Going twice. Steph, you did such a good job. Uh, Joe, did you have anything? I, I did make reference, or Rose or Dale, um, if we're violating uh, you know, what they thought they were doing, we would of course love to hear from them briefly. And, but we will turn to this question of what we mean by these generalizations in more detail here shortly. Um, I, I would love to pick your brain about um, your flattering depiction of my book, because I don't think we did as good a job as you depicted us doing. Uh, but some of it is I don't, we didn't know a better way to do it. So in our book, we talk about structural factors like decline, that's your relative power is eroding, and that's gonna to lead to a behavioral result. The problem we had empirically was that structural theories work behind actors' backs, right? So um, Adam Smith's theory, you know, it's not the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker that think about maximizing domestic capital stock. They just sort of do it because uh, they're led by a propensity to truck barter and trade. And like Darwin's theory works, but if you ask, you know, I don't know, a lizard or a frog, why it is that they're making their reproductive choices, they're not going to give you a good answer. So how can we check, what does it mean to have congruence in a structural theory that convinces people? Okay, so so let me let me make sure we're we're talking the same language here, and um, because because when I say congruence, I mean something that's just quite simple, which is is summarizing the presence of the antecedent condition uh, and the outcome, which you can do in your book in that one long sentence. Yes, but that one long sentence doesn't get to the the mechanisms which you stipulate to operate in the in the theory, which actually are not lizard-like, Joe. They're working through humans who have beliefs. They have an information set. They have biases. And if you look back to one of the early examples of this, which is the Schultz book on democracy, he's actually quite explicit on why he does cases. 
because the reduced form econometric designs he's doing don't test for the whole signaling model at all, in fact. In other words, all the causal work in that book is being done by the casework, not by the econometrics. Because the theory is one about how actors perceive these things. So I, I you know, we can talk about my criticisms of your book. There, there are a handful of things I think you might have done differently. But I think the reason why you need to do the within-case causal inference is because your theory actually involves things like do actors perceive that they're in decline? How do they understand that decline? What is their theory of the world about what retrenchment will do to their strategic prospects? Those are things which is very hard to model in an econometric design. And so one of the reasons why the LNQA piece of this, that is the within case causal inference pieces is important is precisely because it's the only way to get at some of those intervening steps in the, in the causal argument. So I don't fault you for that at all. Why do the cases? I think you just don't justify why you do the cases, which is precisely for the reason which I, you know, which I spelled out there, right? Does that make sense, Jeff? It does. This is a, obviously a longer running thing. I don't know if you ever saw Ken Waltz and Ernie Haas uh, argue about this publicly, but, uh, <laughs> but Waltz would there? always say, like, you can't test it. You can't test it. You wouldn't know, right? right. Like, he has a point, and I happen to be more on the other side of the line that, like, there are testable implications that you can get inside a little bit, but there's still some black boxing that goes on. Okay, well, I'll just say I'll just say one thing in this regard, and this is—I mean, my UCSD students, colleagues have heard me say this a million times, and and Rose, I think, is particularly good. Her book is particularly good in this regard. You have to be uh, very clear about what your qualitative expectations are, and you do that. You say if if this theory is to work, then leaders should be aware of these dynamics. And again, Rose, I think, is quite explicit about that. She says, you know, I'm, what am I looking for? I'm looking for, you know, evidence that leaders are involved in decisions with, with respect to their dependence on oil. And so I think that just clarifying those, those um, qualitative expectations in the work is a key part of the approach. I'll turn it over to Gary because otherwise we'll eat up all the time. Gary? Fortunately, I had time while you were answering questions to deal with software problems, but I think my screen share is now working. Does everyone see the screen okay? So this is iPad sharing. So this is one that look a little bit different from your usual sharing PowerPoint and that sort of stuff. So, um, so as Steph said, you know, we, when, you, when we've been reading these Princeton and Cornell books, we think that, you know, really generalization is the kind of, in some ways, the core goal is to make these generalizations about the behavior of great powers of other actors that are true uh, in a lot of cases. And so, what got us motivated is, okay, what, what's the methodology of doing these generalizations? How do you support them? How do you think about choosing cases and that sort of stuff? So I'd like to briefly go through something we sent the reading 
uh, about. So I'm gonna try to do this relatively quickly because uh, there's about two thirds of this stuff we haven't actually presented before. So there's no place you can really go to read, read it exactly. So I'd like to start with just sort of simple generalizations. This is uh, in the readings we use this example from Jack Levy and Bill Thompson about you know, probably the most canonical hypothesis in IR, right? If there's a hegemon in the international system, then countries will balance against it. That's a pretty standard part of all IR classes. Uh, it's a generalization. And so part of our project is to try to understand how these generalizations work in a methodological sense, because in some ways we think they've been a little taken for granted. And so a key thing here is this F, oops, let me get my thing here. If then, so some of you might know I'm a QCA person. And so we're gonna take really serious this if then. So if X equals one, then Y equals one is what we will call an X generalization. So if there is a hegemon, then countries will balance against it. And we can come back to that in the question and answer period, but this is not a correlation. This is a generalization, which is not a correlation. Um, and so here's what it looks like when you have an X generalization, you're selecting X equals one cases. And if you're right, they all end up in the Y equals one cell. And if they don't, then they have falsified your generalization. So it's very simple, right? How many cases where X equals one is Y equals one. And so that was what Joe was doing in the example that uh, Ann Rose and others were saying, look, nine out of 11, 12 out of 13, right? You select on the cases of say in Joe's case, decline or whatever, and look how many countries retrench. That's a simple generalization that fits this form. So you're really, all the action is over here. Right? And if you had all of the cases where X equals one, maybe 15 or 20, you could look and see how many are satisfying and how many are not. And then the ones that are not, or we call these the falsifying cases, right? So Joe's case, he's got two or three, depending on how many, you know, how you count, Rose has got one. And one of the advantages I think of this particular approach is it focuses a lot of attention on the falsifying cases. And one of the things, the trends I've seen is there often, it isn't often clear what the falsification cases are. So Joe is really exemplary, right? In the beginning, you have this table and you see that here are these three cases or two cases, Rose, same thing. But in a lot of the books, we don't know exactly what the falsifying cases are. And so we, Stefan, I think that's one of the advantages of the LNQA is that if you're looking at all cases, it forces you to look at the falsifying cases. And so one of our sort of recommendations going forward would be to have more discussion of the falsifying cases. So picking, you know, we've been picking on Joe, it would be nice to have like a mini chapter on the falsifying cases. You know, you do it for a couple of paragraphs, but I would like to have seen more about that, those falsifying cases. And I think that's true with almost all the books. We There's some attention, but I think once you've got this framework, it forces you to think about much more clearly what's going on in the falsifying cases. 
so here's the example from the Libyan Tomsi. So in their case, they found that the country's only balanced 55% of the time. So it's not a very strong generalization, right? Way lower than the examples we gave above, which was like 75 to 100%. Uh, you know, so it doesn't seem like that's a very strong generalization. You know, barely above half. Those are just congruence generalizations. It's just based on doing, you know, simple counts. And you could, this is very quantitative, nothing particularly qualitative about this. But in their case, they found there was not that much support for the canonical balancing against hegemon generalization. Now notice, and we can come back to this, we're not looking at anything of what's going on in the x equals one column. This is why this is not a general a correlation, it's a generalization. And that's why the form of it is really important. This f equals, right? It says only, we're only interested when the x is equal to one. We don't really care what happens when x is equal to zero. We don't have a, a we're not making a generalization about that. What we're making a generalization about is when x is equal to one. And that's why these are just left at dash because they don't contribute to the generalization. Now we can come back to that. Uh, but this is why this would be controversial if we had a lot of statisticians paying attention because they would say, you know, you can't do that. That's not a valid generalization if you don't consider the x equals one column. The x equals zero column. Sorry, uh, sorry, x, x equals zero column, thanks. Um, so one of the things you'll notice that about these generalizations is they run from essentially zero to one. Oops. And so one of the things that this kind of a methods thing is, so what counts as a strong generalization? You know, 55% doesn't sound too high. Uh, you know, I think the into our intuition, I think the books that are reading is that if you're in the 75% range, if you're over here, like Joe is, that's pretty good. Um, but what we need for this is something like a p-value. So like what, where, what's the level at which point we say, yes, this is really a strong generalization. At what point is it, is it not? Uh, and so we're sort of playing around with the idea that here are the percentages that you get. Oops. Uh, you know, whoops, you know, like Joe's 75%, 25%. And here is, the sort of level or p-value of the generalization. So Jack Levy talks about iron laws. So we think if the generalization is probably above 0.9, you're kind of in the iron law zone. I think uh, in QCA 75 is kind of a magic number. Rose uh, mentions that in her work. So we think if you're 75 or above, that really constitutes a strong generalization. We think using the Steve Van Evera kind of metaphor that if you're between 55 and 75, that's kind of a straw in the wind. You know, it's kind of a tendency, but it's not really a strong generalization. And then once you're down here, you know, below 0.5, below 50%, it's just not a strong generalization. You I mean, there's some evidence, but it's not a strong generalization. So we're playing around with some of the, these ideas to sort of more formalize what constitutes kind of a bar. You know, it's like a p-value. Yep, you're above the to 0.75, so you've got a strong generalization, you have a significant correlation, that sort of stuff. So that's what we call conceptualizing 
strong congruence generalizations is that you need to be 0.75 or above, typically. And if you're above 0.9, you could call it an iron law. Jack Levy kind of likes that language. And so this is part of developing the sort of logic of what a generalization is and how strong it is. Um, so I'd like to pause briefly. This is kind of our, you know, use Joe's metaphor, the end of the first period, uh, hockey terms, we're, you know, sort of close to Canada. Um, so this is a brief introduction just to the notion of what a generalization is, or in this case, next generalization, what constitutes a strong generalization and maybe some criteria for deciding if a given uh, generalization is strong or not. Uh, this particular figure here is still sort of a work in progress. We think it actually will vary. So the way this works for Y generalizations might be slightly different than for X generalizations. Uh, but anyway, we think this is a way to get kind of the equivalent of p-values when you're doing this kind of moderate n, large n case research to have a sense of what kind of what are the standards here. Uh, and we think for a lot of people, it's kind of in the 0.75 range. Yeah. Anyway, I, questions, yeah, comment? I think I think Mike maybe said. Let, let, let me let me just jump in and say one thing here um, to 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 uh, before we open up, and that is that one of the things we're finding is that some of this work is actually directed at showing that a causal claim doesn't generalize at all. So, for example, mm -hmm. the Sexer and Furman is about nuclear compellents. They take a whole mm -hmm. bunch of cases. Uh, in which it's attempted, and they're basically the effort of the book is to show this doesn't work ever. So we're focusing on what you might call positive generalizations, but in the book with Bob Kaufman, Dictators and Democrats, in the Sexer and Furman, the objective is the opposite, is to show that a claim, which either has been made as a result of, let's say, a game theoretic model or an econometric design, doesn't hold when you subject it to uh, this within case causal inference test. So we'll come back to that when we get to the Sexer and Firmer, Furman example. Yeah, Mike, do you have your hand up? Mike Desch, I don't know if there are other mics floating around. Uh, or, or Joe, are you managing the... Oh, that, uh, that's perfectly fine. Mike does have his hand up and I assume he's about to talk. Mike, <laughs> Oh, I see Rose has got her hand up as well. So, but Joe, go ahead, manage, manage things. I'm, I'm trying, like, okay. <laughs> I, can you hear me now? Yeah, we got you. Okay, great. Uh, hey, uh, Steph and Gary, thanks for the paper. It was very interesting. Uh, although it also uh, stretched my old brain, uh, maybe beyond capacity. <laughs> um, but I, I wanna ask you about three things. Um, first of all, uh, I, maybe I'm locked into the, uh, the old mindset too much, but I, I don't get why X equals zero is unimportant. Um, you know, I, I think you're right. X equals one uh, is where a lot of the money is, but uh, I, I sort of thought the lesson of uh, KKV and the uh, debate that uh, evolved out of that was not only that you had to select on the independent variable, but you had to select on a range uh, of values on the independent variable, including uh, X equals zero. Um, so what's the false consciousness 
that I'm in the thrall of there. Second question is on falsification. And I understand in principle why falsifiability for an argument is important. Uh, but I get the sense from your paper that you're making an argument that goes beyond that. But I, I can't exactly figure out uh, what that is. Uh, beyond, you know, there's the obvious thing, which a lot of cases uh, fall into the, uh, you know, falsification quadrant, the theory is in trouble. But I don't think that that's what you're saying. I think you're saying something else. Uh, but I'm not sure exactly what that something else is. Um, and the final question is, uh, and maybe I just heard, misheard you or misread you. Um, but you guys sort of treat um, uh, large N and universe uh, case, sets of cases uh, as being equivalent. Uh, and, and I don't get that. I mean, I, I think if you have a universe, uh, you know, you're out of the universe uh, of sample selection bias. Um, but even if you have a lot of cases, if they're not a universe, then all of a sudden you're back in the world of potentially uh, bias selection of, uh, of cases. So what am I missing there? Uh, but thank you for uh, pushing my old brain on these interesting and important issues. Maybe we can gather one or two more questions and then uh, maybe a brief response and then move on. Sure, we, I'd be happy to do that. Um, Rose, would you like to be next, please? Sure. Uh, hi, everybody. And um, uh, Steph and Gary, thank you so much for all the kind words on the book. I so appreciate it. Um, so the question that, that I have, I guess it's similar to Mike's question, um, which is, you know, Gary, you had mentioned that if X, then Y is a generalization, not a correlation. I think I understand the general argument that you're making because you're looking just at, at present, you know, if this is present, this is present, not looking at the, if this is absent, this is absent side of things. Um, but I guess I'm wondering how, how do you justify that move to the say KKV people, right? Um, and, and sort of the, you know, even just more broadly, I and mean, this is really sort of what the paper is all about, um, you know, how do, how do you sort of theoretically justify, okay, 75% is a good, you know, threshold for um, strong generalization. Like, what is that sort of based on other than 75 seems like a lot, you know, that's a, that's a good number, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I asked because actually when my book was under review, uh, this was, a, you know, a comment that I got from one of the, the tougher reviewers, which was something like, you know, yeah, okay, so a bunch of the cases that you've looked at, it works, but what about the rest of the universe? What about everywhere else? You know, how can you really call this a strong generalization? How do you know if it travels, da, 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 da. So, I mean, I, I appreciate that hopefully this will become a, a, you know, a publication that people can point to and say, look, they say it's okay, <laughs> right? But I'm just sort of wondering more about sort of the conceptual underpinning of why that threshold. Um, thanks. Okay, we're also gonna get uh, 
two more questions, one from Eugene Goltz and one from Kevin Rossellon. Uh, were you, I didn't. I didn't hear whatever you said, Joe. Were you telling me to go? Because yes, it said one, unmute. One. Yes. Ah. Okay. Good. So I guess I have a, a similar question to where Rose was going, but maybe phrased in a. You know, she she was asking why is seventy five a good standard? Like we know the, um, you know the p values are based on. Um, you know, some probabilistic argument about um, uh, the likelihood that you would observe what you observe if the theory were false and, um, you know, drawing from a bigger population, right? There's sort of this sampling theory argument, you know, what's the equivalent underpinning of, of, of the claims you're making? And, and I would put it in the context of I mean, I think there are there are two. Well, I'll just I'll just say it strikes me that your approach to thinking about case selection and generalization is comes across to me from the reading and from the and from the the um, uh, bit of talk that you've given as frequentist, just. The more that the, the more cases that you have that match the the claim, the happier we should be. You know, the, the more we should believe the claim is generally true, and um, and so generalization comes from large n. And I think many people who do qualitative research reject that frequentist argument, that underpinning. And so I wonder if, you know, so I'll give, I'll give two other logics that I think are widely accepted among small and qualitative researchers. And if we could contrast yours to these other two. So one is um, uh, Steve Van Evera's logic. Um, you claimed Steve straw in the wind word. Steve uses straw in the wind to refer to a test rather than to a uh, proportion of outcomes of tests. And Steve's belief is that, as, as, as I understand it, having talked to him a bunch and taught his book a lot, is, is um, that um, uh, one case is enough to establish, uh, to build confidence in a theory, and one case is enough to falsify a theory. The problem is that the cases that we observe are infected with noise, with static, with other causal variables. And so he defines straw in the wind versus other types of tests based on the uniqueness of predictions. Can you winnow out? Can you find the one case where, you know, what he calls a doubly decisive test? the theory you're interested in makes a prediction that's different from every other theory. And if, you, and if the outcome of that test confirms your case, it only takes that one to say that your theory is better than all of the others, right? It, because you've had a decisive test. The others failed to explain it, but yours did. And so his logic is not based on frequency, frequency at all. Another logic, that could work is, you know, Eckstein, or I like it in, you know, John Goldthorpe's 
uh, old telling from a long time ago in, in political economy, but, but it's kind of, uh, it's the most likely or least likely case. It's that not all cases have um, an equal amount of probative value in studying a theory of whether the theory is true. And so if you have auxiliary theories, you have other theories that you accept as true that give you insight into which cases are more or less important, you pick a certain number of cases that have more information, whereas frequentist approaches say all cases have the same information and we just average across the cases. If you have some reason why some cases give more information than others, you pick those and that's how you generalize. And so, you know, Goldthorpe does this with the old and bourgeoisement theory. Uh, theory. Um, I, I think it's fundamentally what Daryl Press is up to in his um, uh, book about uh, uh, credibility and, and uh, you know, past actions versus the current calculus theory. But he's trying to pick, um, you know, most likely or least likely cases. And if least likely cases confirm or most likely cases reject, then we can generalize. But that seems like a very different, there's a logic to the explanation that differs somehow from what I think is your frequentist approach. And I wonder if you could comment on, on what drives what you think makes a generalization other than just get more. Okay, last question from Kevin Rossalon and then we're gonna let the, uh, the host answer them. Okay, I'll be very brief. Um, thanks, thanks for the talk thus far. I, I just wanted to express maybe a little bit the opposite of uh, what Eugene was just saying. It, it seems that just using a general measure of 75% seems to lack any um, direct feedback with the actual size of N. To me, it seems like 75 out of 100 cases seems more generally applicable than three out of four even though they have the exact same percentage. And so I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on how to balance the need for a theory to actually be generalizable and cover more than just a small number of cases potentially, or, or are you willing to tolerate a lower percentage if you can get a higher end? Is there a trade-off there? Yeah, interesting questions, yeah, all around. Uh, so, Gary, do you want to go, yeah, go ahead? Yeah, so... Stop in reverse order. So, uh, Kevin, so I've been thinking about that. So, I think you're right. There's somehow we need to build this sort of end into the scheme of things. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but, uh, you know, remember this the 0.75 is just like saying reject if P is point less than 0 0.05. That's a, you know, why 0 0.05? Why not 0.1? It, you know, it's just, it's a conventional standard that has been arrived upon through sort of, you know, who knows how. And the 0.75 is the conventional standard that QCA uses, which has been arrived upon exactly in the same way. This is kind of people do this and there's this kind of discussion and, you know, sort of 0.75 is sort of the number. Uh, and we can talk, there are other rationales for it, but you know, at our point, we're thinking this is more of a, Steph mentioned this is an anthropological, sociological. We think that the sort of consensus among these folks is that 75 is, is pretty good. And that's people's intuition. Uh, there's some other arguments, but you're right. It needs more justification. Uh, just one thing I wanna keep moving on, but remember, this is why Steph put up those generalizations 
because this is what people, this is the interesting, again, sort of anthropological part. This is the generalizations that people are putting out there. When people do the generalizations, they're not using this column at all. They're just saying, this is the generalization. Now, oh, wow, 75, 10 out of 11. Right, so in practice, this is what the generalizations are that people are doing in, in practice. They're not looking at the x equals zero column. And so this is a kind of an interesting tension because once you put it like this, you know, when you put this two by two table up, then it seems obvious something is wrong. But the practice is actually not x equals uh, zero column. And it comes in later, you know, it's sort of be, you know, part three of this mini series. Um, but in fact, when people are doing the generalizations, they're not using the x equals zero uh, row when they think it's a strong generalization. Again, these examples that we put up illustrate this quite nicely, that when people are doing it in practice, they're not thinking about that comparison column. Anyway, let me move on, because a lot of the same things uh, Eugene, we'll come back to your questions, which are sort of more philosophy, big issue philosophy ones, maybe at the end. So just so I can get through. Um, so one of the things that Steph and I got together on, this is really the thing, was it wasn't about these congruence generalizations, right? These are just percentages. This is like statistics, really. Uh, the thing that was really interesting to both of us was the fact that each observation was not through congruence, but was a within case causal inference. So Steph looked at each of those, what is it like 70, 60 or 70 cases, went in detail and said, okay, in this case, does the Asimoglu and Robinson theory hold? And goes into the details and does process tracing and says, no, it doesn't work in this case. And that's in fact, sort of the key feature of what we call LNQA generalizations. So they're based on case studies and within case causal inference. Okay, and so what you do is you go through each of these cases, you go through Rose's 10 cases, and she says, okay, in each case, I went through and did process tracing. I looked at them, and yes, this theory is working in this case. Right, so it's not a congruence thing, it's a case by case causal inference case. Uh, procedure. And so the generalization is not a congruence thing by just looking at like what's the percentage of the total, but it's it's accumulation of within case causal inferences. And this is where we think this is the crucial part, in fact, for the you know Princeton, Cornell, you know, Cambridge books is is the accumulation of this within case causal inference for most, if not all, of the cases in the population. So if your population is 10, you're doing 10 causal inferences. And ideally, if it's working right, each of those 10 causal inferences supports your theory. Right, so that's much stronger than doing these congruence generalizations we just talked about. So that's why we stress it's within case causal inference. It's not a congruence generalization because the series of individual within case causal inferences that you then say, look, I've did all of them. This is what Trachtenberg did in the security studies. He said, I looked at all of these major power crises and I couldn't find any evidence of audience costs in any of them. So he went one by one and said, look, generally speaking, I can find no evidence. 
So that's why this is quite different from a congruence dense because it flies not on just the percentage, but the within case causal inference with each individual case. And so the percentage now looks very different when you try to generalize because you're generalizing based on a whole series of much more internally valid causal inferences. So let's see how this works. Oops. So this is the sexer and Furman example. So if you look uh, through this book, uh, they had, you know, there's the beginning part, if you haven't read it, is, you know, large end statistical analysis, correlative more data, you know, all that stuff. Um, and so they say, wow, look, uh, here, failure, since they, they're predicting failure, that's what y equals one is. So they're predicting failure, compellence failure, and they only find compellence failure 57% of the time in the congruence test, you know. So it doesn't seem like they're doing that well if they're predicting failure of uh, nuclear compellence, it doesn't work, okay? And then they say, well, and that's, but then here's all of these falsification cases. This is why I think the falsification cases are so important. They say, well, what the hell is going on in those 10 cases? And so what they do is they have a whole chapter where they go case by case through those 10 failure, those 10 successes, they say, well, in fact, they're all failures or something else. So by going case by case through them all, they say, act, 100% of the time there is failure. Based on within case analysis, we get a much stronger generalization because we're looking at each of the cases individually. And in fact, what looked like they were falsification cases in the congruence test were in fact, once we looked at them and there was mismatch, you know, there's lots of stuff going on, but none of them were actually falsification cases. And Joe does a little bit of this with the, was it France, Germany case in your book? Say, well, it actually wasn't, you know, cause and effect, you know, if you look at the case, it really isn't a falsification case. That's what I kind of read you guys saying. Uh, and so that's sort of the importance of the within case in the scheme is it allows cases to move around because it's no longer based on the congruence and the statistical you know, measurement models. It's based on looking at them one case at a time. And so for us, this is the core part of LNQA. This is what Steph and Bob did in their book. You know, they did statistics and you know, all kinds of panel analysis. But once they looked in the cases, there was a discrepancy between how they were coded in the large and statistical and what they saw going on in the within case causal analysis, and that's what we illustrate in the, the paper we circulated. So that's kind of the difference here is that generalization takes a different form. And it's no longer this kind of congruence generalization, but it's based on this within case causal analysis. And we see that most of these Princeton, you know, Cornell books, they do it for part of the population, but we think it would be nice if they did it for the whole population, you know? You do, uh, you do eight out of 13, why not do the last five? You know, finish them off, maybe not as in depth or whatever, but you would then say, look, I've done all the cases where X equals one. I've looked at them all, which is what these guys do. And they get, you know, 100% confirmation of their theory. Again, they're not talking about in these two chapters, they don't talk at all about these. In the case study chapters, they have, they're paying zero attention 
because they think that all that matters is what's going on in the x equals one column. And if they can resolve these 10 falsifying cases, they're in business. So that's what we think is kind of the core of the LNQA is often to start with a kind of congruence generalization. But once you start looking at the cases, then you do the, the heavy lifting of process tracing within case analysis. And you end up with what we would call an LNQA generalization, which is uh, much more internally valid and we think the generalization is much stronger. So that's, so we kind of stopped a little bit, you know, before we got to the meat of it, because I wanted to get people to use the idea of what a generalization is. But in practice, I mean, I encourage you next time you read one of these books, the X equals zero column is not really a concern when people are doing the case studies. Not always, sometimes, but in, in our scheme of things, that's what's going on. All right, so let me move on to Y generalizations. So this is just a summary of what they said. This chapter critically says 10 apparently successful cases of nuclear coercion in these cases would have provided the clearest evidence in favor of the view that nuclear blackmail works. However, none of them unequivocally supports the nuclear coercion at school, right? So they went through each case and said, look, none of them work. Okay, why generalizations? Now these are more controversial and trickier. We could do a whole session on why generalizations, but it's the same notion. We select on why, hence all the problems that KKV has taught us over time. It's the same deal. Look at all the why cases, and we've got the causal mechanism. These are the successful cases, and these are the falsifying cases. All right, so it's the same logic. We're not really that interested in the y equals zero, which is why people complain about selecting on, but it's the same logic of generalization. We can do the same thing, go do within case analysis and say, yes, X was definitely a cause of Y in all of these cases. And so you can end up with a Y generalization that has the same form you know, uh, as an X generalization, but on the Y equals one instead of the X equals one. Gary, Gary, yep. can, aren't these the cases that you call the equifinality cases in the paper, not falsifying, right? Falsifying Sorry? are the X equals one, but Y equals zero, but you're showing X equals zero and Y equals one. Okay, so Steph and I, we've talked about this, but if you think about why are these falsifying cases? Because there's some other route to Y. Right, there's some other explanation, some other causal mechanism that's generating Y. So if you have cases here, that means there's equifinality. But what that means is that you're falsifying, those are falsifying cases for the mechanism you're interested in. Right, so these would be the alternative- your claim is a, is a necessary claim. No, you're saying, well, so, right, so that's what a Y generalization is. And, is in you know set theoretic terms, it's a necessary condition. You're saying, yes, it's a necessary condition. And these would be falsifying cases for the necessary condition. Just sure. like X, X generalizations are sufficient conditions. And so the falsifying cases there would be the cases that falsify sufficiency, okay? But you find a lot of people doing this. I mean, people start off with Y equals one. 
And they come up with these really strong generalizations about what is always present when y is equal to one. Right? And so that's a really common move in a lot of research is to develop those strong generalizations, which are very useful and very valid. Okay, so the question then is, and this is why the Y generalizations are different and more complicated. So what happens in practice is that when people do a Y generalization, somewhere along the line, they convert it into an X generalization. And so this is a very murky area, but frequently what people do is they, they say, okay, wow, X is always present when Y is equal to one, and then they convert it into an X generalization. And they say, oh yeah, well, I, here's the cases where X is equal to one and your outcome didn't occur. That's not an Y generalization, that's an X generalization. And so when people do statistics, they're converting Y generalizations into X generalizations. And so I think one of the things that's become clearer to us as we read these books is it's, one needs to be very clear about what is the form of the generalization. Is it a Y generalization or is it an X generalization? And it's very easy to confuse the two, particularly if you go from Y generalizations. People rarely go from X generalization to Y generalization, but people almost always go from Y generalization to X generalization without knowing that's what they're doing. Okay, so let's see why that, oops. So here's one from Roses. Here's an example that we grabbed from Rose's book. Uh, high threat, extreme strategy. Yeah, right, it's a necessary condition, right? No falsifying cases, very strong Y generalization. What about here? We don't know what's going on there, right? Those would be the falsifying cases for the X generalization, but for the Y generalization, they're irrelevant, so to speak. And so that's why we think the, even though they formally look the same, they actually in practice work kind of different because of the fact that people often go from Y to X, but rarely go from X to Y. Okay, and you can see why you can now have different, so you can have a strong X generalization and not have a strong Y generalization can have a strong Y generalization without a strong X generalization. And you'll also notice that this cell never matters, right? So cases in that cell never apply to either form of generalization. And so depending on what you're doing, the falsifying cases look different. And so we think this is part of trying to make sense of what we see people doing is, are they doing X generalizations? Are they doing Y generalizations? Where are the falsifying cases lie in the scheme of thing? And be clear that what you're trying to falsify is an X generalization or a Y generalization. And this finally, and then we can pause for a moment, is why statistics will be different from these generalizations, right? Statistics will use all four cells, right? Chi-squared, anything. Right, so this means that your X and Y generation are not necessarily going to give you the same results as a statistical analysis because they're using different parts of the, uh, the table, different kinds of information. So it's possible 
though very unlikely, that you could have a strong statistical correlation without having a strong Y generalization or a strong X generalization. Uh, so let's pause there. That's a lot of material, but I wanted to kind of get through that um, sort of sense of, okay, what's the Y generalization? What are the X and how do they go together? And why does this produce different outcomes that you might get than what, when you're doing say any statistical analysis? Okay, Joe, maybe we can open it up. Uh, now, Gary, you presented all your material of the formal presentation at this point, and then we'll just be doing Q&A from this point forward? Um, I could do the last sort of conclusions, but, uh, well, let me just continue on and then we'll just open it up. Yeah, I think that that would be a good idea. Okay, right, so this is kind of what I just said. Strong X generalizations do not imply, and in fact, rarely imply strong Y generalizations and vice versa. Right, they're separate forms. Uh, the relative blind spots are the falsifying cells. Right, so if you're interested in an X generalization, you don't see the falsifying cases for the Y generalization and vice versa. So those are just kind of blind spots that can, um, Y generalizations almost always become X generalizations, but not vice versa. Uh, and so there's, in general, confusion between the two kinds uh, of generalization. Then I think the final slides, well, this is continue, uh, uh, skip that. So let me just summarize and then we'll just open up for Q&A. Um, so uh, part two, of two, three, and four of our HBO mini series, we think probably the next part would be looking at the stuff in red. So we haven't talked at all about the complex theories, you know, and all these books that we've used are complex theories. So Mike has already heard me, Dave and Mike and some others have already heard me talk about problems with two by two tables as complex theories. Uh, there's issues there. Um, I don't know how many times I've read these books and said, uh, if they would just write the QCA equation, things would be much clearer because uh, it's not always so clear. Uh, Joe, I would say if you would draw me a better and more elaborate causal mechanism figure, a lot of Notre Dame people know I'm a figure obsessed. Uh, you know, like how do these things fit together? These four parts of the mediating variable, the, the dependent variables, very complex. I see some ands and I see some ors and I see some linear relations. I'm going, Joe, how does this all fit together? So if you draw some figures, I think it would be helpful. Uh, one of the things we've talked about, a lot of people don't choose all the cases. So if you've got 15 and you only do seven, why those seven and not the other eight? So we have some ideas about what we call generalization case studies. So maybe you can do mini case studies for the other seven or eight to kind of try to cover the whole population, not do them all so intensely because that would be impossible, but maybe do kind of, you know, five page case studies. Um, there's stuff that Stefan, uh, and then, you know, all of these Princeton Cornell books all have these sections of discussion about alternative explanations. So where does all that fit in? So how do you begin to think about alternative explanations and all of this kind of this framework? Where does that fit in? Is it equifinality? You know, is it all in the process tracing? Where are the, where do the alternative explanations come in? Uh, so that would be sort of episode two, and then we've got more stuff dealing with the 
unexplored rows of the X and Y generalizations. And uh, we haven't had time to do this, but multi-method QCA. So how do you come up, do a, a large LNQA if you're also doing statistics, which we think is sort of slightly separate set of issues and so forth. Anyway, so let me end there. Uh, uh, let's throw it open for general Q&A. Uh, some of you who had questions, uh, maybe we can come back to those uh, at this point, but um, turn it over to you, Joe. Uh, Steph, did I cover, maybe just talk, toss the ball back. Steph, did there's something else you want to put in before we throw it well, open? Well, yeah, you? I just, yeah, I just have a few small uh, answers to previous questions, but let me just, let me just focus on, on one in particular from Mike, because I think, I think one of the things we're talking about and the reason it's, it's difficult to, to reconcile these two analytic worlds that we're seeing is just because the nature of the claims that are being made are quite different. So, and this gets also to something Eugene uh, raised and, and you know, why we wouldn't consider this a frequentist approach. Because, uh, you know, probabilistic models are interested in identifying an average treatment effect. What is the average treatment effect of X on Y? But this kind of work is interested in, in identifying cases in which the treatment either does or doesn't have the, the, the postulated effect. So for example, you can imagine an ex, just the most simple vaccine experiment where you um, administer a vaccine to a population, a placebo to, an, to the other half of the population. And then you're basically just trying to figure out what is the average treatment effect of the vaccine on the population. But even the treated portion of the population may get the may may or may not be successfully inoculated. That's a, that's a sort of different question, right? It's not about the average treatment effect. It's about the distribution of cases within the population. And 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 so you know, to Mike, it's it's not that we're saying that doing frequentist analysis or probabilistic analysis is somehow misguided. It's just giving you a different thing. And, and most of these books are making claims that go all the way back to no, bourgeois, no bourgeoisie, no democracy. That's the nature of the claim. You know, they're making a kind of necessary condition claim. Yeah. So Steph raised this, you know, when you think of, Think about what people say when they sit talking about vaccines. They're talking about X generalizations. You get the treatment and how off, what's the percentage of success? Is it 95% or 55%? That's just a straightforward X generalization. There's no X equals zero in there at all, right? So it's a, a natural thing we do. We just don't think about it quite in the terms that we've laid them out. Anyway, I'm, I'll shut up and let other people ask questions I know. Let's segue over to, to Yuge again, who wants to bring up another question, but hopefully you can revisit the thing you wanted to revisit on his first question. Yeah, so um, thanks. And I don't wanna um, dominate too much if other people have questions, but so Steph, in your answer to Mike and me, I agree with you. It's interesting to know the proportion of treated people in the vaccine experiment who still get sick and who don't. Like that's the effectiveness of the vaccine. But that doesn't strike me as addressing the generalization question, which is how do you draw inference from the rate within the sample of people who you treated 
to the entire population. So in the vaccine experiment, we don't treat the whole divide the whole population and monitor the whole population. We treat 10,000 people, 5,000 get the placebo and 5,000 get the vaccine. And you're saying X generalization is looking at the 5,000 who got the vaccine, how many of them got sick? But the real generalization question is how do you go from the 5,000 to the 330 million or the 9 billion or whatever it is? Right. And um, you know, I'd still want to know about the logic of that generalization. Um, you know, how would you pick the people for the vaccine experiment, I guess, is the equivalent to how do you pick the cases? Right. And then I would add, based on the last bit that Gary presented, um, you know, so again, in tension with what I said before, like one of the key results about of, of frequentist statistics is that the population size doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is the sample size. But you guys keep referring to the proportion of the population that the theory explains as being an important measure of merit. And so again, I wonder what's the justification that you have in mind for that kind of proportional claim being important. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is this is again, you know, it's it's one of those things where it takes a while to. It took me a while to shift mindset. So, if you're testing vaccines, you're interested in extrapolating from that experiment into a larger population, but that's not what you're doing in LNQA, because the population is defined in such a way that it's limited in scope. I'm not interested in the whole human race. I'm interested in all cases of great power decline. Now, there might be a forward extrapolation, yes. and most of the books in, the, in this literature try to say, hey, you know, if I extrapolate forward into the current conjuncture, which is the China case, what would I predict? And, and if, they have, if they feel they have a strong generalization, then they will usually put forward that generalization and say, you know, look, it's worked in the past. We expect it to work in the future. Now, they need to provide reasons for that. But I just want to emphasize again that what Eugene is talking about, the question of extrapolation from a, from a, a, a sample to the population, is what the LNQA technique is actually trying to get around because we're, we're not interested in extract, extrapolating to a larger population. We're trying to figure out within this delimited set of scope conditions, are there generalizations about the relationship between X and Y that we can make? Does that make sense, Eugene? It's what these books are doing. <laughs> I actually just disagree with you, Steph, about what these books are doing. Like, I think they're making a general theoretical claim that every time a new case comes up with these scope conditions, we expect this theory to explain the relationship between the independent and dependent variables in that case. They're claiming not that these three cases we're looking at are the sum total of all cases in all time history or all possible cases ever, they're saying the reason we want to study these cases is that they're an important example of a general phenomena. And maybe I will look at every case that has happened so far. Yeah. But the reason they want to do that is not just to comment on China today, but to comment on, well, what if somebody finds another case of decline sure. that we haven't had evidence about before? You know, uh, something in, in ancient India or whatever. No, I, 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 I absolutely agree with that. 
I absolutely agree with that. But, but nonetheless, I still think there's a difference between the problem of extrapolating from a sample onto a whole population and a statement of the integrity of a generalization across a population in which you've identified all extant cases. I just think, I, I just think those are two you know, somewhat different exercises. And almost all of these security books, Roses, Dales, uh, McDonald and Parent, you know, they're, they're all saying, these are all the cases of the phenomena that I'm interested in, all of them. All right, I'm gonna truncate discussion there only because we have 15 minutes to do three more questions. I'm gonna go slightly out of order um, and uh, go with uh, Daniel Jacobs. Hi. Um, so I, I, I guess my, my questions uh, really tagged on to uh, what Eugene was saying. You know, I, I, I am sympathetic to the distinction you're drawing about generalizing within the cases, within the known cases, and then using those to make extrapolations about the future. But I guess uh, it, it, it sort of um, raises the question of what does an additional case actually mean for generalization? So whether that's a case that already exists in the, in the real world, and we've just missed it, or future cases. Um, so let's say we have a future case of uh, great power, uh, of great power uh, decline, and the state does not uh, retrench. Um, how are we supposed to interpret that within, you know, Joe's Joe Joe's view within his theory and findings um, in his book? So I'm just wondering how how to weigh those weigh those new cases because it is possible that you know what we found is uh it, it, it we do gen we can generalize within the known cases joe has but what if a bunch of other future cases actually tell us the opposite um how wh what are we supposed to do in that case not that i think that's going to happen but i'm just wondering thanks i'll come back on that you want to collect another? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, Dan Lindley, would you like to offer up another uh, uh, question? Sure. This could be just putting things in somebody else's words, but it seems like the, the two worlds that you're trying to marry are united by one thing, and that's what Posen would call bogs art, which is a bunch of guys sitting around a table. And so that's how you come to the conclusion that 90% equals a law. Now, if Newton drops an apple, and 90% of the time it falls, but 10% of the time it flies up into the air, I'm wondering if that's law, but that's your world and your judgment call. On the other hand, I think Eugene's point was really right, that different cases have different strengths and weaknesses. And if you have a few really good cases, well-chosen, hard cases, however you want to quantify it, you can come to similar conclusions about their strength. Equally, it's another value judgment by you guys. You're praising all these books today, which is great. Um, but you have some finger feel for the quality of the work involved. You have to bring your own professional judgment to that. So in both cases, it's going to take your judgment as methodologists and as field experts to come to some conclusion about what the author's, the strength of the author's conclusion, whether you want to do the frequentist approach or 
the case study approach, or in this, in your case, it seems like you want to marry the two. I just wanted to see if you would cop to it that what you're doing is bogs art in both cases, and that's fine, but that's what it amounts to. Okay, let's just make it a clean sweep and get Mike Desch to answer, ask his question, and then you guys can answer them round robin in the 10 minutes we have left. Uh, okay, uh, I wanted to point out very quickly that uh, Steph's uh, gloss on Barrington Moore's argument uh, is a zero zero uh, argument, but that's uh, flogging a, uh, a, a dead horse. I, I, I really want to come back to the, uh, what I think the heart of the causal mechanism uh, claim is. <clears throat> and, and that's an argument that the correlation between X and Y isn't sufficient to uh, demonstrate the causal link, that you have to have X and Y you know, plus the specified causal mechanism. Um, and I think most of the, the work focusing on causal mechanisms is not interested in external validity. Uh, I, I think it sort of, you know, makes the assumption, particularly for rare events, uh, that there aren't a lot of events out there and that the key thing, the key contribution the causal mechanism approach uh, is identifying and tracing those causal mechanisms in a handful of cases. So in, in, in a way, the, the correlational and the causal mechanism approaches are like two ships uh, passing in the night. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I get the sense that what, what you're trying to do uh, with this uh, LNQA is, is marry them. Uh, and maybe some people are trying to do that, you know, Joe and Rose and Dale and uh, Sexer and Furman. But my instinct is that that's not the heart of the uh, causal mechanism claim. And the agenda is not external validity, it's internal validity. Um, and that's where, you know, proponents of that uh, think that uh, things uh, stand or fall. Right. Uh, let, let me uh, let me start and then and then I'll let Gary Gary round out, because I think that um, Dan, Mike and Eugene are all asking a very similar question. And, and I, I don't want to to uh, deflect from my own views um, back onto the the people who are doing this kind of work. But Mike, I think I think you really hit on on something which is which is exactly right which is if you look at the causal process observation literature as a whole, and in fact, you know, recent summaries of that, like the most recent Beach and Peterson book, they're specifically saying exactly what you're saying, which is that process tracing is within case causal inference within a single case. But what I think is emerging is nervousness about that, is nervousness about that. Because this question of, of external validity looms large over the entire case study literature. And one way of seeing this LNQA movement is an effort to address that nervousness. And so, you know, if you go back to Eugene's first question, he's saying, well, look, you know, if I get a really good case that's a hard case, 
And I really investigate that. And it's an important case. It's a substantively interesting case. And I do a great job of showing you that my theory works in that case. Am I happy? Well, yeah, you are happy. But what about someone coming along and saying, but does it, you know, is it portable and where? And I think the LNQA literature as a whole is exactly hitting on this problem, which, you know, as Gary and I point out in this piece, is shared by experiments. Because when I do an experimental design in a particular time and place, I'm giving you the experimental result in that time and place. But experiments have got the same problem of external validity the cases do, which is, will it, is it portable to some other place? And what the LNQA is trying to do is to saying, yeah, my theory, this is what Rose is doing. She's saying, look, my theory is portable, not just from the British in Mesopotamia, but to the Nazis in you know, Eastern Europe. I think that would be my response, Mike. It's not that these aren't, the, the, the within case causal inference is a perfectly legitimate thing to do, you know, and it, and it has value, but this is something that's just a little different than that. Yeah, so um, just a few more words, I think, you know, one of the, you know, I circled this on the overhead, but one of the things we're, you know, sort of on our list of for future episodes is this whole issue extrapolation, which is, you know, has nothing prickly to do with LNQA. It's true with statistical analysis, you do a correlation, you know, to what extent does that correlation hold in some new sample? Who knows? Uh, so that's kind of a generic problem with any kind of analysis. And when you want to move outside your sample or population to something else, you know, the question is, you know, how do you justify that and how does that work? But, you know, I would sort of point out, you know, just remind people when you read these books, when people justify their case selection, how do they think that case selection is related to generalizability? Typically, it says I choose on variation on X and I choose on variation on Y, and therefore my arguments are generalizable. I don't know how many times I've read that. Right, so that's the general, that's the canonical generalization argument. And this is a very different approach to that. It says, look, select all the X equals one cases, look at all of them. And if you get this, find the same causal mechanism, then it's generalizable across whatever the scope, you know, like Steph was saying, the scope or the population is. That's a different sort of argument than saying, oh, we selected, a, you know, of, of you know four or five cases and they're kind of different on x but you know there's only five out of 20 they vary on y and therefore whatever argument conclusions we make are generalizable to the population of cases and i find that just completely unconvincing frankly whereas ours you know the what we're presenting is a much more focal focused generalization it says here's the y generalization here's x we're going to look at them all the cases within case is a very different logic than the traditional sort of variation on X, variation on Y logic that drives a lot of the case selection. And I just, you know, and you know, we're, we're biased, but we think this is, gives you a much more solid basis for generalization than the variation on Y, variation on X kind of thing that you see in sort of most of these books. It, Gary, not, not to interrupt, but in a sense, can can you tell me uh, why that is the case? Um, you know, and it, and again, when we're talking, you know, a lot of the uh, LQN uh, LNQA mm -hmm. 
uh, you know, uh, samples or universes are still uh, pretty small. You know, if you're talking mm-hmm. to Sexer and Furman, they're like 22 mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. nuclear crises. So, you know, it, in a way, if you're if you're essentially co-opting the, the large end claim of generalizability, you're going to have a hard time doing it uh, with 10 cases or 22 cases and convincing, you know, people that are accustomed to thinking about uh, generalizable in terms of large samples or, uh, you know, even the, uh, the universe. Then I just, I don't get the, the argument about why not having full variation uh, on the uh, dependent or the independent variable isn't useful. Are you saying just for generalizability or are you, are you making a broader claim that all you really want is to select on one value of the independent variable? And if that's your argument, could you explain that to me? Because I don't get it. I read the paper and I listened to you I know you don't like it, but I don't know why you don't like it. That's what's sort of, uh, you know, I'm trying to wrap my head around. So, you know, running out of time, but, you know, this is why I think that the focus on what is the hypothesis is really critical. And that's why, you know, we started off with this, if X equals one, then Y equals one. And that's where you're going to be looking at the causal mechanisms within case. The, the, The X equals zero column becomes an issue like in episode three when we talk about trivial necessary or trivial sufficient conditions. So there are circumstances and in general, you will want to look at those, but they are typically not a problem or not an issue in, you know, in most designs that where you, where you find strong generalization. So if they do play a role, Mike, but like Rose, when you do coverage in QCA, that's what we're talking about. So typically, you know, it's an issue, but it's like a secondary issue and it's not a major issue. And that's why it's in episode three and not in episode one. So it's not like you never want to be interested, but the action is is in the X equals one column, say, right? And so the the other stuff does matter, but it's 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 very secondary to what your hypothesis is claiming. And that's why people do this. When you look at what cases people select, you know, Joe, Rose, everyone does what we're describing because they understand that that's where they're going to see what they, what their theory is producing the mechanisms. And so that's, you know, kind of the tension between the methods part and the practice part is that we intuitively do this, but there, there's no methods book that says, you should be doing this. Just people have just found this the, the intuitively logical way to do it. And it, and it makes sense. I don't know if that helps Mike at all, but you know, so you're right. We've dodged. Well, the, selecting on the dependent variable is intuitive. I, you know, I, I right, did it right, myself and, it's a good and then idea. I went to graduate school and got it right. beaten out of me, but right, you know, right, but there, right, right. And the, I, the, my, is, I, the let me just, let me, let me say that. I know we're, we're getting to the very end, so I'll, I'll, I'll be very brief. Um, Mike, I actually agree with you and Gary and I disagree on this because I think it is possible to have comparative designs using LNQA. 
And if you'll notice, most of the, the generalizations we're talking about here, they're taking a particular outcome or a particular causal variable and they're trying to get it whether it works. But I could imagine an LNQA design, which was comparative in the sense that you were choosing high or low values on a particular parameter and seeing if those, those, um, the causal expectations worked. But, but uh, so I don't rule out the design you're suggesting, Mike. I, I think that uh, Gary's more hostile to it, but we're, we're working on it. All right, well, I look forward to the sequels and the prequels and the fan fiction, <laughs> but I think most of our audience is looking forward to dinner. So let's excuse them, but uh, everyone let's join me in giving a round of applause to our, our presenters. And thank you very much, Gary and Steph, for a wonderful presentation. Thanks for thank you guys for a very you know great comments and thanks for thought-provoking ideas. Yeah. It was fun. All right. Take care, everybody. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash N-D-I-S-C forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap. <laughs>